The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. Sometimes you meet somebody and you know you're lucky to do that. And that was how it was for me a long, long time ago, back in my hometown of Kansas City, when I met Kathleen Kastner. She is a yogi, she's a writer, and she is an angel for animals, and we're going to be talking with her today. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, and so grateful that you have chosen to spend this time with us It's really such a joy in this new rendition of the podcast to get to truly share with you remarkable women that I have met and known and kind of collected for a really, really long time. And I just feel like everybody that listens, certainly everybody who's been in touch with me, everybody who's made comments on the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group on Facebook just seems like a remarkable person too. It's just such a wonderful thing to be able to gather with people who really are trying to be part of something uh, that came out of my mouth when Kathleen and I were doing a little prayer for this episode. And that is the upward progression of the universe. May we all be part of that. So introducing you to my friend, Kathleen Kastner lives in Encinitas, California with her husband and three rescue cats. She is a volunteer at Rancho Coastal Humane Society, where she adopted a very special cat named Noah, and he's got a whole book written about him. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you so much, Victoria. It's so great to be here with you. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you, and I am holding your sweet, sweet book. You know, I have never had the nerve to publish a children's book because I think that children are such critical readers. I would rather take my chances with adults, but you've done such a lovely job. You've done, of course, the the copy and you have a lovely illustrator, Caroline Tran, who has done the artwork and then the, the 
the feline characters are are so charming. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the kids book biz. Well, like you, I was terrified because I didn't, I don't have my own children. I, I'm a stepmom, but by the time I became their stepmom, they were a little older and I wasn't reading to them. So long story, my two soulmate cats, Julian and Oliver, who I was very blessed to have for 17 and 20 years, um, they passed, actually Oliver passed two years ago today. So I thought that was a uh, div little divine synchronicity that we would get to have the podcast today. And to be honest with you, after all, Julian died first and Oliver died two years after. And when Oliver passed, I was so devastated. I loved being their mom more than anything on the planet. And look, I can barely talk about it still. And I just had to do something to get over my grief. Um, you know, we were, we were the best of friends. We were soulmates. And, you know, because I didn't have my own children, I'd had them since they were five weeks old. So they were really my life, you know, again, being their mom was my favorite thing. And now what am I going to do after 20 years? So I really had to pick myself up because my grief was like all consuming. I was like, how, how can my life ever be great again? And I have a wonderful life. I have Noah, the orange tabby and two, two others since then. Um, so I have three cats now, but at the time I was just um, so distraught. So about a month went by and I grabbed a pencil and a pad of paper and sat on a chair and just started jotting down um, a, an entirely different, well, not entirely different, but it was a different story and it rhymed, which I, I don't recommend doing. I ended up um, at the advice of a children's writing coach, um, not rhyming it after all, but I just started getting my thoughts out there. I wanted Julian and Oliver to be superheroes. They are the karma cats. The book's called Karma Cats to the Rescue, and they look and help other animals in need. And in this book, they help my orange tabby, Noah, um, who it, the story is actually based on a true story. Uh, when, when Julian died, he sent me Noah, who I found at the animal shelter where I work at. And um, Noah had been living outside in a different part of San Diego for five years. He was not fixed. He was not microchipped, and I'm not sure. Someone was probably putting out some food for him. We, we don't know. He got transferred up here. But when I brought Noah home to Oliver, <laughs> Noah was very rough, and he just wanted to tear out through the windows and doors, and we just didn't see this coming because at the shelter, he was very quiet. So we had to figure out something to help Noah adjust to our lives instead of making Noah fit into our perception of what he wanted what we wanted him to be so we first started my husband built him a catio so we thought well at least he can be outside and be safe because to be honest with you most of the outdoor cats in Encinitas have died from cars and coyotes a lot of coyotes even in the day so I'm like, I've never had a cat that just lives outside. I just can't do it. But Noah kept fighting us. He keeps sneaking out doors and windows. And then finally, I, start, I said to my husband, I'm going to leash walk him. He's like, he won't do it. Well, he took to it from the first minute I put that kitty holster on him. And he's like, let's go, mom. So that's the long story. Is that he is the star in the book. And we show how our family helped him 
to adjust to being an indoor cat with outdoor visits um, through the Karma Cats getting him adopted into our family. Oh, well, it's a very, very sweet book. I happen to love children's books for my own reading. <laughs> I started that in college because when I was taking courses that were completely outside my realm of understanding science courses and things like that, I found that if I could read a children's or a young adult book on the subject, it would give me an introduction and an understanding so that when I was going to dive into the actual college level books on the subject, it just made it so much easier. And that kind of got me, you know, looking into some of these wonderful, wonderful books for, for children. And yours is, of course, for, for young children. It's it's a picture book. Um, so your website, Kathleen Kastner, K-A-S-T-N-E-R.com, want everybody to have that. The book is Karma Cats to the rescue. <laughs> and if you've got kids or grandkids or nieces, nephews, uh, neighbors. <laughs> I know I have a little neighbor who just absolutely loved my dog Forbes who passed mm. away last summer. And he would draw pictures of him and come to visit and all that. And so I share all my animal books with him. So uh, this copy of Karma Cats to the Rescue is going to be beloved by a child as well as by me. So tell us a little bit more about you before you started writing this book. And I know you're writing another one. I, I have a kind of an idea that you're going to have a great sort of franchise in uh, <laughs> children's books about uh, rescue animals. But tell us a little bit, Kathleen, who you are. What were you like when you were the age of someone who would read Karma Cats to the Rescue? Uh, well, I was raised in Salina, Kansas, and I always loved animals. I, I was adopted, and my family was amazing, but I really fe felt more connected to my pets. And what's funny is even my stuffed animals, you know, I just was always very compassionate towards animals. I stopped eating beef as a child. I have a funny children's story about that. My mom was reading me Curious George. So I was probably like in first grade. And that night at dinner, she had me, um, we had roast and I wasn't eating it. And it was one of those things like you can't get up from the table till you have one more bite. <laughs> so I must have barely, I remember just having it in my mouth going, okay, but then that night, she's reading me Curious George, and I ended up getting sick all over, all over the bed and all the way to the bathroom. So she never made me eat beef again. So that's that's the kind of child I was. I was also extremely athletic. Um, I wish I had even an ounce of that that I had as a kid. Uh, I was in swim team when I was really young and did pentathlons. I was a dancer. And so I, I really loved to move and be outside. I was very much a tomboy back then. And I love it that you were so much connected to the animals around you, because I know for some people, it's like animals, you know, take them or leave them. You know, it, it's like, it's, it's just not an interest for a lot of people, even some people who grow up with animals, it, it just doesn't connect at a, at a heart point. And this, of course, is one of the things that I love so much about being vegan, 
that you don't have to be like you and me. You don't have to feel connected to animals. You don't have to love them. You don't have to think they're cute to not eat them and not harm them. So it's just a wonderful way <laughs> to do unconscious activism and unconscious good karma uh, just by by food choices. And I love the beef story. You know, I was so different, Kathleen, because I grew up, you know, in Missouri, but close to Kansas and Kansas City. And I just loved meat. I loved all kinds of meat. I liked steaks and, you know, all of it. And yet I started getting these early messages. The first one was when I came home from first grade with uh, four food groups and my nanny, who was this really spiritual, interesting grandmother age woman, heard me recite them. And then she said, huh, well, there are people who never eat any meat. And they're called vegetarians. And I could take you to a restaurant and get you a burger made out of peanuts and you'd think you were having beef. And I remember thinking, whoa, I need to file that away. And I didn't really know why. I just knew, you know, it kind of resonated. So it's it's interesting to me how we grow up and we get mature and all that but we're still this same person. And that's yeah. kind of what yoga philosophy would say too. Exactly. First of all, how lucky that you were introduced to someone, you know, that was taking care of you that would even say the word vegetarian. You know, I, I wish, I don't know why that didn't happen for me. Cause I did, I did continue to eat chicken until my twenties and I never liked fish, but I felt, I don't know, it's such a long story, but I had, I had decided I was going to quit everything. Chick oh, I didn't even know what the word vegan was, just chicken and fish. And then I went to Kauai and this yoga teacher sat by me and said, oh, you're in Hawaii, you got to eat the fish. And so I, for some reason, which now I would never think twice, I ordered some fish. I took one bite of it. I immediately tasted very fleshy. And I, I discreetly spit it out in a napkin and that was the end. Never again, you know? So, you know how, I don't know, I've had other things in my life that I know I drank and, and smoked when I was younger. And sometimes you just have a last, a last hurrah with something and then the door goes shut Yes, for, forever, yes. you know, a last burger, you know, a last egg, I don't know. But for me that my, and I feel terrible that I wouldn't have the consciousness to connect the fish to life. Of course that fish wanted to live, but I just, it was my late twenties. I guess I just didn't, didn't get it yet. But then I, but you know, the, just the taste of it. And I was like, okay, I get it now. <laughs> this is, I'm eating, I'm eating somebody, you know, and then, and that was it. <laughs> we come from a culture that says, of course, you're supposed to eat it. You get it from nutrition people. You get it from medical people. You get it from religious people. You get it from the government. And so to be able to overcome that it is, is phenomenal. And, and everybody who has done it, everybody who's in the process of doing it is, is really exceptional because it goes against the grain of uh, society. It is. It's it's a huge deal. Hopefully one day it'll be the norm. But anytime someone 
is eating more plant-based foods and actually, you know, talk, makes effort and, and, and gets it. I'm, I'm grateful, but well, I know, I, the, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, you go ahead. You're the guest. <laughs> well, I was just saying, you know, the food system, it's like you said, it's like, Oh, meat, fruit, vegetables, grains, you know, it's just, you're lumping animals and with fruits and vegetables, you know, <laughs> there, there's just like, it's just common that you're not, you're not thinking of the life it had before it was wrapped in, in the store, you know? Exactly. And I find it especially sad that in the Hawaii story, the person who told you to eat the fish was a yoga teacher yeah. When ahimsa and vegetarianism, I understand not veganism, but a really good kind of vegetarianism that's no meat, no fish, no eggs, that's the tradition. And yet somehow, at least in this country, we just don't hear that much in the yoga community. We do some. I mean, certainly Jiva Mukti and, and some other wonderful yoga instructors are out there carrying the message loudly. But the majority of, of uh, people in the yoga world are, I guess, eating pretty much anything. Oh, yeah, very much. So I, I taught yoga. Well, I had a yoga studio for 16 years in Kansas City, and I tried I, I've been vegan for 20 years, so I did everything I could to try. We would do the walk for farm animals, for farm sanctuary. Uh, PETA would send us the startup kit, vegan startup kits. I would keep them at the front desk. We definitely talked about Ahimsa, probably more than some wanted to hear, the eight limbs. And we had our teacher training students go vegan for the training. And it was obviously up to them. Some did, some didn't, some stayed vegan. Um, you know, just try, oh, you know, we showed movie screenings. And so we, we really try, my husband and I, and, um, you know, occasionally I would get some backlash, but but barely. But I did ask the other yoga studio owners, because we were all friends. I said, look, PETA will send you these startup kits for free. All you have to do is send them out. You know, I wrote a whole list of all the own owners. Not one person replied. And probably because they weren't vegetarian or vegan, possibly some, but they didn't want to risk losing students over it, where I just put myself out there because I felt like it was it was the most important thing I could really do. Yes. That's so interesting to me because yoga was really what pushed me over the edge into becoming vegetarian. I had thought about it and I wanted to do it for the animals. I tried when I was 13, <laughs> but it was really yoga. And when I discovered yoga, it was the late 1960s and it was just considered weird. I, I say often people who listen to the podcast have probably heard me say this before that people confused it with yogurt. And they knew that both of those things were weird and foreign and alien, and you should probably avoid them. <laughs> and so I read the three books that I could find in the library. One was called Yoga, Youth, and Reincarnation by Jess Stern. That book was written in 1965. And then there were a couple by Indra Devi that were actually written in the 1950s. And all three of them were adamant that if you were going to be serious about yoga, you had to stop eating animals because you simply couldn't 
make the spiritual progress that yoga is about as long as you were defiling your body with death. And, you know, they say you hear something three times, you're supposed to hear it. <laughs> and so it was really within about a year and a half of that, that I was able to um, stop eating meat and fish. I did kind of revert back to fish a few times, I'm ashamed to say, but that started the, the process. I hadn't even heard of, of vegans. And so the fact that the yoga community is so out of touch with that is just surprising to me. I, I was standing in a yoga studio here in New York City a few years ago, and they had a collection, like an anthology that Yoga Journal had done. And I had an essay in there about veganism. And, you know, my ego sometimes comes out. And I was very proud of seeing that book with my essay in it in the studio. And I said to one of the instructors who was standing there, oh, I want to show you my, my essay that's in this book. And I, you know, opened it to the page. And she looked at the title and she said, oh, isn't it great that now that there's humane meat, we don't have to be vegetarian anymore. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my Lord. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, it's like if somebody had said that to me in the Dunkin' Donuts, I would have thought, well, of course, you know, this is a minority viewpoint. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't expect it in the yoga studio. Oh, so I know it's it's, it's very, it's very sad. I, I did not hear anything from my yoga teachers ever about um, Ahimsa when it came to diet, probably because they were not my first teacher might have been vegetarian, but the other ones were not. And for me, I really changed to becoming vegetarian because of the practice itself. You know how the, the practice just changes your consciousness. Um, Rolf Gates has a saying in his book, Meditations from the Mat, that the more you practice yoga, your bad habits will lose you. And that's just, to me, the breathing um, the breathing more than anything, the breathing and Shavasana and meditation, you know, you are, you're changing your consciousness, whether you want to or not. And that was the thing. Like I started yoga, um, in 1993, I was still partying. I did not go to yoga to stop drinking or going, you know, <laughs> and the door shut. I had no desire to drink anymore. And then the door shut on eating animals, but it was never that someone was talking to me about it. It just happened organically. And I'm so grateful it did. It's the same thing with weight loss. A lot of, I wrote a book called Yoga's Path to Weight Loss because I saw more people lose weight doing yoga than I ever did when I was an exercise physiologist working in traditional, the traditional fitness world. I just felt like, well, the asana itself did definitely change people's bodies, but I knew it was changing their mind and the way they felt about themselves and food. And I had a student once who told me later, she was a smoker and she had a 30 minute drive after class and said, you know, after class last time, I forgot to smoke. <laughs> I forgot to smoke on my drive home. So that's how I, I related to, you know, people, these, these things start going away and we never, these, you know, they never came to yoga to lose weight. They were losing weight. They were, their friends were changing. Their diet was changing. They didn't want to party, you know? So it's, it's really cool how that works organically. It is. I wish it worked all the way to veganism, but I, I, I know, know that it works. 
I know. I'm, I think for sure vegetarian, the veganism, and I'll be honest with you, I I went vegan. I went to a Marianne Williamson conference in Michigan when she was a unity minister. It was a peace conference, and I just went by myself from Kansas City, and um, Dean, excuse me, Dennis Kucinich, the Ohio congressman, got up at this conference and gave a talk on how he had undiagnosed health problems, no one could figure it out, and he read Diet for a New America by John Robbins, the heir to Baskin Robbins, who had, you know, left that whole world to do plant-based education and writing, and he read Diet for a New America and became vegan, and his health problems went away. So I'm in the audience, I'm vegetarian, I really never heard the word vegan that I know of, and I had an inhaler in my purse because I was still having asthma and allergies, and it was from the dairy, but I didn't know it at the time because no one ever asked me what I say are the four magical words. What are you eating? You know, none of my doctors talked to me about my diet. So I went home and I thought, well, if that just changed Dennis Kucinich's life, I really don't care about dairy and eggs. You know, they were definitely not a big part of my life at all. But when I was eating them, they were causing me allergies, asthma, and acne. And I unfortunately, I did not know anything about the cruelty yet of the dairy egg industry. So I went vegan. I was the only vegan. I didn't know you yet. I, I just went vegan. And I, it was easy because I always loved carbohydrates because I used to, you know, I was, used to be more fit. And I always loved, you know, carbohydrates and fruits and vegetables. That was easy for me. But um, so I really thank him for you know, letting me know, no one had really ever said, if you take out dairy and eggs, your whole health could change. And it, it completely changed. And my skin cleared up, which I'd been struggling with for 20 years since I was, you know, 13. So then when I learned about the cruelty of the dairy and the egg industry, which was unfortunately a few years later, then I was like, oh my gosh, the whole world needs to know about these industries and their cruel practices. And it's so much easier. I know you're an animal lover, so it would have spoken to you the first time you heard it. But a lot of people change their diet for their health reasons. And then they learn about the ethical stuff. And it's so much easier because when you're supporting an industry and somebody comes up and says, this is immoral and you're doing something terrible, you're like, no, I'm not. I mean, that's just that's just human nature. And yeah. so I love it that there are all these wonderful health reasons for making the change, because once you're not supporting the industry, when somebody says, oh, by the way, this is really unethical, you're like, well, I didn't know. Thank God I'm not supporting those industries. Exactly. I wish I had known. I really, I just didn't, I don't even know when I finally met somebody who was vegan, but um. Uh, yeah, I feel like if more people saw videos of the chicks being destroyed, you know, on the conveyor belt going down, um, the, of course, just the horror of the dairy industry taking their babies. You actually spoke in Kansas City, and it was very powerful. I, I'm, I think I was a new vegan, and you talked about the cow story of the farmer, I'll call her Bessie, getting her kind of whistling or getting her up there so they could put the bolt to her forehead and she she wouldn't do it. But when her farmer got up there, there she comes because she trusts her farmer. And that just like, that just spoke to me so much. It was so devastating because 
I just feel like these animals are betrayed by their humans that are yeah. supposed to be caring about them, you know? Well, that's the thing. I mean, in the factory farm system, they don't have any real relationship with humans. So their whole lives are hell, but there's not really betrayal because they don't expect anything else. But yes. in these systems that so many people hide behind and say, well, I only get my meat from, you know, families, small farms and all that. If that's even possible, because only two to 3% of the animal products come from places like that, it's extremely expensive. And lots more than two to 3% of the people that I know who eat meat tell me that that's where theirs comes from. But even in those rare cases, that that betrayal at the end and the story that you talk about was something that happened to me uh, when I spent a day in a slaughterhouse. I do write about that uh, in the chapter on beef in my book, Main Street Vegan. So if anybody wants to uh, see the story in its entirety, that's where you can find it. Well, Kathleen, why don't we just have a moment for the animals, the animals that people eat, the companion animals that you do so much work to rescue and take care of. And then uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about yoga and all its forms. Ah, okay. <laughs> Let's talk about yoga. <laughs> How did you discover it? And, and what, what caused you to get started after your athletic history? Well, I was very blessed that in 1993, I moved from Kansas to San Diego. And my first job was with Sharp Hospital. And I had to open a fitness center at 5 a.m. And so when you're coming out of college and getting out of four, <laughs> it was a rude awakening, but it was all meant to be because at my 5 a.m. job that I actually got in the yellow pages, that's how long that was ago, I, um, Dr. Deepak Chopra came to uh my floor. He was at the center of mind body medicine upstairs. I was at the center for sports medicine and he came down and wanted a personal trainer. And this is again, 1993. So I did not know who he was. My boss did. She was eking like, do you know who that is? And so um, we hit it off right away. And even though we, I was doing cardio and weights with him, you know, he had this whole center of mind-body practices. So his staff members actually taught me, one, one staff member taught me my first sun salutation, uh, Brent Beckvar, and I just saw him a few years ago and I told him, you taught me my first sun salutation. I remember it like it was yesterday. And then another one of Dr. Chopra's staff members, I went to her class and because I was an athlete, I was so terrible. I was just trembling and triangle. I, I'd gone to stretch. I knew nothing of yoga, and it was a it was a vini yoga, so it wasn't didn't you know it wasn't like an athletic yoga, and it was slow. And then, but at the end when we did shavasana, I definitely had uh, like a spiritual experience. I I felt so loved. I had tears coming down my cheeks. I had no idea what was happening. I'd gone into stretch, and so looking back now, I feel like. That was probably the first time I had ever had a quiet mind in a, a while being awake, you know, not being asleep, literally. So I felt like my mind had turned off for even a minute or two there and that my heart, like I could finally like feel my feelings. 
And it was just amazing. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I went up and talked to her. I said, Laura, what's going on back there? And she just kind of smiled at me. It was like, you know, like, welcome to yoga. And so I kept going, not very much, once a week because I, I was, my job was fitness. I love to still exercise, you know, cardio weights. So I wasn't ready to give it all up yet. So I would go once a week and really wasn't making any progress, but always felt amazing when I left. And then I moved to Los Angeles to work for the Pritikin Longevity Center and got introduced to Vinny Yoga. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, Vinyasa Yoga, the next V, and immediately fell in love with it. It was at Yoga Works. And I was like, wow, you know, yoga can flow and have more strength and have beautiful, you know, fun music. And, and then I was really, I was really hooked. But of course it was, you know, I was still just asana based. And, but then I started going like four days a week and just fell in love with it. And like when you talk about asana based, that's what most people think that yoga is. So for people who are like, huh, what, what are all these words? <laughs> asana is the posture or what people in this country would say the exercise. It's the shoulder stand or the downward dog or the headstand. Yes. But yoga as a philosophy and a way of life is so much more than that. You know, it's almost like if you think about all the aspects of a marriage and what makes a, a partnership or relationship really work, and you say, uh, let's see, going to the park together on Saturday mornings, that's it. That's what marriage is all about. Well, no, if that's part of your marriage, that's like 1% of what it's all about. And that's what asana is to yoga. Because yoga is really about something so much bigger and so much deeper. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Kathleen? Sure. So my first yoga teacher was amazing. She was she was young and she had had a very lucrative career as a photographer for Mercedes Benz and had, you know, chucked the big corporate career to open a yoga studio here in San Diego. And she was so she taught the sutras, and I remember her saying, my greatest goal in life is to know God better. And I thought, wow, that's very commendable. I'm like 25. Unfortunately, I didn't really get it. So about three years later, I went to an ashram at Mount Madonna and met a very hip Presbyterian minister from San Francisco. So I asked her, I said, what do you think is the greatest way to know God? And I list off all these things. And she said, hands down meditation. And so I loved that. And as you know, meditation is one of the eight limbs. And so she gave me a book by Thich Nhat Hanh. She mailed it to me after I got home called Be Still and Know. So, cause that's the mantra she gave me at the ashram on the inhale, say to the mind, be still. And on the exhale and know, and it comes from Psalm 4610 be still and know that I am God. So I started doing that mantra, just be still on the inhale and know on the exhale, just silently to my mind. And it just was this like magical elixir to the mind chatter. It really, really helped me. And then this book by Thich Nhat Hanh, which is such a beautiful little book, compares the similarities of Buddhism and Christianity and uses 
the mantra, be still and know. It's, it's really a universal mantra. And so I was so grateful she did that. She introduced me. So I would, before I would go to my yoga studio, I would go to either Unity Church on the plaza or this other little chapel called the Pil Pilgrim Chapel that were open. And I would go sit by myself before I would go start my day. And it was such a beautiful experience. I, I, I kind of missed that. And then later that I just started meditating at home, I, I got a med you know, a little meditation area, you know, an altar and candle. And, and so I had a special space or place to go. And I just started doing it every morning and every night, you know, pretty much like clockwork. It wasn't an option. It was like brushing my teeth, you know, and sometimes I'd be half asleep and I always pray, pray. I always pray that, that actually is my number one thing. I always talk to God, not just morning and night, but all through the day, but the meditation changed my life just as much as the postures had. And then of course, even more so because as yoga people know that we're, the postures are really trying to help us release tension and stress in the body so that we can sit comfortably. Asana actually means seat, S-E-A-T, so that we can sit to connect with God, the divine, more fully in a comfortable cross-legged position. Doesn't have to be lotus. It doesn't even have, if you can't, I've gone through periods of being injured where I couldn't even sit up. It can be laying down, it can be whatever. I do prefer to sit upright. It just helps me have that straight spine and, and to not fall asleep. But if you can't sit up, of course, lay down or just and really focus on the third eye. That's always been a huge, helpful gazing point for me. And then various mantras. I use various mantras throughout the years. And I am a student of Paramahansa Yogananda and SRF, Self-Realization Fellowship, who um, if you subscribe to Yogananda's lessons, there are mantras in there. Dr. Chopra hugely helped me with all his beautiful mantras, too. Uh, and so I just, I feel really lucky that I feel like yoga and meditation found me. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I just want to say for anybody that hasn't read it or is new to all this, that the founder of Self-Realization um, Fellowship, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, wrote the most stunning book, Autobiography of a Yogi. And I put off reading it for about 40 years because everybody that I knew in the yoga community and kind of the spiritual community, they were all like, oh my God, that book will just blow you away. And I didn't want to read this book that everybody else had read. And <laughs> I was in London, yeah, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And I just found it at a used bookstore and it's like, okay, you know what? You're not hanging out with those people anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that are talking about how great this book was. <laughs> so it's time to read it. And Kathleen, I think if I had to say what one book, and I'm a book nut, you know, but what one book did the most for you in terms of knowing that there's more to life than meets the eye, it was Autobiography of a Yogi. I have chills all over my body. <laughs> That's so awesome. Awesome. I love hearing that. Yeah, it was it was just 
Yeah. Well, anyway, so it's, now it's I'm going to be like, like those people yeah. I used to hang out with and say yeah. to everybody listening, it's the it's, most important book yeah. you really have to read. And it's a page turner. I mean, it reads like a yeah. novel and parts of it, you'll be going, did that happen? I but, know. Uh, it's yeah. Inc- it's incredible. I, gosh, I have so many stories about autobiography of a yogi. I, I worked for SRF for our spiritual bookstore for a while here in Encinitas. And I had a guy come in who it's a long book and it's not an easy read (laughs) you know I mean it's it's got you know um he said I stayed up all night he read the whole thing I've never heard anybody who did that because it took me a lot longer and then um you know Steve Jobs had everyone at his funeral get a copy of the AY and um so yeah and, and the movie Awake the documentary Awake, The Life of Yogananda is such a great introduction to Yogananda's work for people who might not be familiar with him. They did a really beautiful job. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to put references to all of these things that we're talking about. I'm, I'm taking quite prolific notes. So <laughs> all, all these, uh, the, the, documentary awake the book all the other books that have been mentioned and i'm also going to link to a couple of episodes of main street vegan which was the podcast that i did for 10 years before i started this one and one of them is a gentleman a dr sumit ball who is a medical doctor here in new york city and he's also a devotee of Yogananda. He said had some amazing things to say on his episode. And then also there's an episode with Kathleen talking about Yoga's Path to Weight Loss, um, her earlier book. So um, we'll have all that on the show notes at victoriamoran.com. So Kathleen, I know that a lot of us who have done a lot of yoga kind of keep quiet about it when our various joints and bones and tendons and parts start acting up, probably because of doing a whole lot of yoga. Have you experienced that? Um, Unfortunately, yes. I got very lucky that I practiced strong ashtanga yoga which i still love to this day and taught it for 20 years and it was my approach towards the end i i had been very lucky to make it through the years and feel, feel amazing and practiced every day like an hour to, to really two hours a day and then once i got into more of the advanced series because ashtanga was first second third even advanced fourth i I pushed myself way too hard, which was all my doing. It was all my doing. I, I don't blame Ashtanga or any of my teachers. I blame myself because I am overzealous. I had that, you know, someone said to me once, you didn't change, you just changed subjects, you know, from the fitness world. And I, I was, I was very defensive at the time, but I did, I was, I was addicted to Ashtanga and it did start to take its toll, but it's only because I you know, chose to put my legs behind my head daily for 20 years and my SI joint got very overstretched. I do not genetically have any back bend whatsoever. And I was really forcing myself into these very deep back bends. I couldn't even do as a child in gymnastics, but I would see these, once I moved to San Diego to practice with my teacher, I'd see these people in my class who were, you know, older than me doing these just phenomenal things so I just thought I should keep keep pushing you know well you know 
look how far you've come. If you just keep pushing, well, first I herniated a disc, which was awful, and that didn't wake me up. So as soon as that healed, I got right back in there. And then uh, two years ago, I had a sciatic nerve injury, which was actually more debilitating than the uh, disc. And it it's, I'm not trying to be like, it was all my fault, but I ended up in bed for like three months. I couldn't take care of myself. It was awful. And I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything. And then finally, I mean, it took months. I mean, being, I had to learn that being able to walk and take care of myself and my husband and my cats was, had to be number one on my list. So I was doing better and I kid you not, I did it again. I was starting to get better, starting to practice, adding a couple more here. And, and then I started subbing at a studio and everything's on zoom and they wanted to do the whole thing from the mat. And that's when something went, I triggered it again and I went down again for months. So it's, it's almost comical, but it hurt so bad that at this time, I, I don't know, I'm not sure what my yoga practice looks like. It's actually still healing. So I just walk and I'm very grateful. I do some chaturanga pushups and walk and that's and I always meditate morning and night and I've had to I've had to let go of everything because it was it was everything to me I, it was my favorite thing it made me feel great I had a community to go to I taught it and I can teach it and just talk it and, and I can adjust but I can't demonstrate anything still because the nerve is still triggered in my foot and um I was embarrassed but now I'm just like I have to I have to solidify the area in my low back and glutes that got so overstretched over the years. And people would, would strength train and, and go to the gym still and do yoga. And I just didn't have any desire to go to a gym, but um, I'm just trying to do it naturally through walking the stairs at the beach and, and doing things where I'm outside. And so it, it was, it was my own doing. I, I got way overstretched, which I never thought, you know, because I told you about my first yoga class, how tight I was as, as an athlete. If someone would have said to you, oh, one day you'll be overstretched, I would have thought there is no way <laughs> my body is ever going to be considered overstretched. <laughs> but it did. And, and if I would have, for lack of better term, cross-trained or done some other things, maybe the Ashtanga every other day, and, you know, some kind of strength and cardio on those other days, I'd probably be fine. But I was so addicted to my practice. And that's what I ended up doing to myself. So it's it's too bad. But I hope someday to be able to do some kind of gentle yoga. I've even tried yin. I've tried kundalini. And my body just, the, the nerve gets triggered. And I just have to, I have to take care of myself because I don't want to, do any permanent damage. Of course. Well, thank you for being so honest and forthcoming about that. And I just want to say, don't blame yourself because somebody should also have told you. And this is very common. I mean, I was talking to a yoga teacher a few weeks ago who had a hip replaced in her 50s. I was talking to one this morning who is going in for knee replacement and she's in her early 60s. It's It can be sometimes too much. Now, the kind of yoga that I do is classic Hatha yoga and it looks very gentle, but 
you can overdo anything. And I think we do have this kind of American competitive personality as, as a national character that we just can't help but want to compete. Even if our eyes are closed and we don't know what the person on the next mat is doing, we want to compete against what we did yesterday. Yes. And maybe the, maybe the yoga for us, maybe the spiritual growth is to be able to say, no, today I'm going to do less than I know I could do. It's it's true. I mean, my friend Lisa Breezy is also an exercise physiologist. She has a wonderful saying. She says, the body never lies. The mind will lie all day. And that's where I was at. I'm fine. I'll be fine. The pain is fine. You know? I'm going to practice anyway. I just wasn't listening. You know, I just kept ignoring it, ignoring it. I just don't know why we, you know, so it's been just a huge humbling. My body and I are going to have a good second half in life. (laughs) That's that's so beautiful. And I know that you're going to find some kind of, of yoga that's going to work for you once you're all healed. Somebody said to me that, the only thing that separates hatha yoga, physical yoga, from Western exercise is the intention and the breath. Mm. And you can mm-hmm. have the intention and the breath, walking, what whatever you're doing. Oh, life brings yeah. so many lessons. Sometimes <laughs> I just want to say, okay, I, I don't need to be in the advanced <laughs> class. I've had all the lessons I need. Yes. Thank you. And then life does what it feels like doing. So Kathleen, what a pleasure. And I hope for everybody listening, you have enjoyed this conversation, certainly as much as I have. And I hope you have too, Kathleen. The book is Karma Cats to the Rescue by Kathleen Kastner, K-A-S-T-N-E-R. The website is Kathleen kastner.com and do you want to give us any social media or anything else sure um on instagram kathleen kastner writer facebook kathleen kastner writer and i actually have a vegan cooking channel on youtube just at kathleen kastner Ooh, cool (laughs) okay well we're gonna check all those out and thank you so so very much for all you do for animals and for all you do just by being in the world and exuding so much kindness and goodness and humility and love. Thank you so much. It's been a real honor to be with you today. Uh, Bless your heart. And thanks to everybody who listened. Now go out and be remarkable. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy, at MainStreetVegan.com. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. 
On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify. 